rather than thinking of the ways in which destruction has been distributed and in which the stability and sustainability of the West has been secured by generating volatility and vulnerability elsewhere, post-apocalyptic culture renders this geopolitical plane into a moral and cinematic question, either by being confronted by impending disaster or suffering from a fall into mere survival, what is depicted as humanity sloughs off its less-than-human past and allows its properly human form to emerge. A self-enslaved humanity, shackled by its lesser tendencies, casts off what it has actually been in order to emerge as the incarnation of its proper and always virtual potential. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of security, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, I just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there, or maybe leave us a nice review to introduce our, our guest today. Actually, our newest patron, so thank you in advance there, but Taylor and I are going to bring you today Claire Colebrook. Edwin Earl Sparks, Professor of English, Philosophy, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. Claire's the author of over a dozen books spanning a broad range of disciplines and topics. Her most recent publication, Who Would You Kill to Save the World, is the work we're going to be looking at today. It'll be forthcoming from the University of Nebraska Press. Again, thanks for uh, both joining us on the show and being our newest patron. We're thrilled to have you and excited for this talk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we ask about your your origin story, because to me you are a superhero. You know, as I said, <laughs> I just got uh, Coop into the Liz probably in the past couple of years, right? Maybe, maybe hey, back what, in. I think you're misattributing your own influence. My own interest in Delos predates predates our, our relationship. Yes, all right, absolutely. All right. How about I go to repilled you then? Is that, is that <laughs> a, a little bit? A little bit, yes. A little bit, okay. You know, obviously, we always try to start, and Coop, you segued better than I did, so I, I apologize. We always try to start with understanding where our guests are coming from, and um, to me, you are a superhero, so I want to know your origin story as much as Coop does. Uh, just tell us a little bit about what got you into, whether it be philosophy, writing, dilemmas, if you can remember or a moment in time that sedimented or, or or solidified that that possibility it actually came from when i dropped out of school i was trying to be a musician and i wasn't very talented and 
became disheartened and dropped out and was working as a cleaner childcare person for some Labor politicians in Melbourne. And they were having Peter Singer over for dinner. Oh, my God. Peter Singer. Okay. Peter Singer. And I was asked to cook something vegetarian, and I was one of those people that were, you know, like, would you like some carrots or are you worried that they screamed when you took them from the ground by person? (laughs) That was an ideological meet, Mm -hmm. Peter. This is like pre-internet, pre-YouTube. And I looked into Peter Singer and I'd never read a word of philosophy in my life, right? Okay. But he had this argument for vegetarianism. Right. right. Utilitarian, which is do you get as much pleasure from eating a fillet steak that it would warrant taking another life? I think what seduced me was less Peter Singer and utilitarianism than just an argument, right? I'd never really heard an argument from principle. I'd heard things like it's cruel or affective reactions. And this this family that I was working for, they were Labor politicians of a, re- a really good type. They had copies of a Marxist journal on their bookshelves called Thesis 11, which was pretty much sort of semi-Frankfurt school inspired. And they used to say, look, read this on, your, on the train. You can read any of our books on the train on the way home. Oh, okay. They weren't indoctrinating me at all. Like it was I could read any of their books. And so I decided to go back to university and study philosophy and was immediately disillusioned because, of course, it was analytic. But there was one zealot there who did Husserl, right, a real zealot. And so I got completely seduced by, again, I think it was more the style of the argument. If he'd been a zealous Wittgensteinian, that would have been where I'd have gone, right? It was more that... Right. I encountered someone who was a real thinker. Didn't publish much, I have to say, but those are often the best people, right? I went over to the English department at the time when there was that, like, the theory explosion. I knew you had an English, maybe yeah. comp, comp lit background. We could right. just tell, we, we mentioned the Milton, but this yes. is before recording, the, the Milton book, the, the Blake book. Um, right. Yeah, I did my PhD on Milton. Oh, my God. And and I was a strong Heideggerian. And then I got my first job at Murdoch University and I met Ian Buchanan, who uh, I don't know if if any of you have met Ian. It's like, Claire, we should do a Deleuze conference. I'm not interested in Deleuze. Claire, we should do which which bit of the conference? Ian, I'm not interested in Deleuze. So you can do this bit of the – Ian, I don't want to do – and we should edit a volume on – Ian, I don't want to. So Mm -hmm. I got dragged kicking and screaming into Deleuze's studies. By and, you're, and you're grateful, I assume. I am grateful, yes, yes. So you you, you are a recovering Heideggerian. And, Definitely. And, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've only talked to um, Ian, like you, on, what do you call it, the, the messaging app, because I, I don't really go on Facebook. Um, oh, right. Except yeah, just, uh, yeah. We're, Ian and I are the Facebook generation, right? Like we're just that bit older than you. I I I, I Post pictures of our pets on Facebook. And stuff. You're right. It's uh instead of pets, it's um my sister. I have one sibling. My sister, she has yeah. two nieces. I don't have any children, so I go on Facebook to see. She's a proud, very proud parent. I go on Facebook to see pictures of my nieces. And you know, maybe they're... that's why it's called. 
Facebook, oh, it's Facebook, right? It comes from yearbooks and just keeping in touch with people from your past. Technically, well, that's its origin, and that's still. I mean, for me, it's always been people in my future because people like you and Ian are not people I've I've met. Besides the fact that I can say, "Hey, I I'm kind of in the Deleuze sphere," you know, I've yeah. I've translated some Guattari's from Simondon, but that's an amazing story, especially the fact that you came in as a Heideggerian. I would have never known that and hardcore. unless you... Uh, hardcore Heideggerian. Hardcore, hardcore Heideggerian. So that when I when I published <laughs> the book on Milton, which was written in like... 2008? Huh? I mean, it was published in 2008, but you said yeah, that was... Yeah, but your... I'd written it must maybe like it was my PhD from nine. You're right. And so everything that I saw in Milton, which was the fall from an original Adamic language into... Oh, that, okay. That's okay. like I just... All I had to do was <laughs> put a minus sign in front of everything I thought in 1993, and I ended up with Deleuze. Oh. <laughs> I've had people ask me about Deleuze's relation to Heidegger, right? Because you, you see in, like, Difference of Repetition where Huge. there's there's almost what I was told, and I look back in the French and... and figure this out was like the Heidegger stuff is actually footnotes, but in English it's incorporated into the main body of the text, right? Where it feels like maybe Hippolyte or um, Alkier or, or one of his advisors was like, Hey, you should incorporate some Heidegger. And Deleuze is like, fine. You know, I don't think that's right. I think, I think he's deeply Heideggerian in, in two respects. Okay. One, we're supposed to be thinking beings, yet no one's actually thinking. He has a different answer, right? Yes. Uh, but he's Deleuze is not as like some really not smart readings have of him, like a simple anti-humanist, like we're all just like the plants and the birds. No, humans have this capacity to think, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that they actually don't do it most of the right, time. Right, right, so right. That's problem number one, and then it becomes like the political problem of anti-Oedipus, you know. Yeah. Why are human beings so consistently not actualizing their force, their power, right? So that's the one mm -hmm. respect in which I think profoundly Heideggerian. And then the other would be, maybe I just implied that, mm -hmm. that notion of well, let's not call it humans as though there's some sort of rational individual like a species, right? Yeah. There's this interesting thing called thinking that was made possible, right? And yet it's made possible but very rarely takes place. Yeah. Right? It has to and come so, from outside, right? It has yeah, to be it has to. And so Heidegger thinks it's by some form of restoration and thinking, right? Yes, but it's the same problem and I, I I, mean, how would we decide this? But I would disagree with you on, like, its place in difference and repetition that it was put in there begrudgingly. Okay, okay. I, okay. It, I mean, if we had a little uh, reconstruction, like if we're doing a Deleuze biopic, it might be that someone said, you know, this is actually Heidegger and Deleuze would have read some Heidegger and like, yeah, I guess, you know. You're right. I just conveniently decided to not footnote Heidegger because that would be. Yeah. 
but it is a big footnote in the French. And and I think that wanting to think the problem of the human, but not as a natural kind, that's going to go all through Deleuze and Deleuze's corpus, right? There is this thing called thinking that doesn't take place, but you can't identify it with a simple material or natural capacity, right? It's not... It's not something cognitive evolution or cognitive paleontology could give you an answer to. Right? It has to come th- out through your Simondon person techniques, right? An understanding of the, <laughs> things that, the things that enabled us to think. It's not a natural given. You're right for uh, for Deleuze for Simondon. Uh, it's it's not something to recover from some ancient past, as you said. It's uh, also it's contingent. Right, it's completely uh, contingent. Yeah, this is where I think Deleuze is also Hegelian. It, oh, ooh, okay, wow. so double it, double bomb. We're, we're <laughs> bombing. Yeah, throwing, yeah. throwing in the H words here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, there's thinking has a history. It mm-hmm. has a yes. technical history. Now, here's the non-Hegelian bit. You said it's completely contingent. Thinking. Com- absolutely may not have happened. However, once it has happened, you then look back and realise the struggle it constantly takes to emerge. And that's a Hegelian history. There are all these attempts for thinking to emerge, right, and they constantly misrecognise themselves in every philosopher, right? There's a struggle with being seduced by images of, what counts uh, as thinking. Yeah, orthodoxy, the but moral, it, yes. the dogmatic image of yeah, thought. But if yeah. you want to understand what thinking is, you have to go back and look at that struggle. That's why even at the end in what is philosophy, you still have where Descartes thought he was onto thinking but failed. Where Kant yeah. thought he was onto thinking but failed. And yeah, yeah, unless yeah. you understand Here's the Hegelian bit. Those failures aren't because they were mistaken. It's right. there's something about thinking that will, not always, that's not the word. There's something about thinking that will tend to misrecognize itself and have an image of itself and think, I'm a good thinker. Right? There's this quote that Deleuze has, because you know about the Wolins. He recently talked about the the Black Notebooks. I mean, like showing more and more about Heidegger's um editors who tried to whitewash the Nazism and stuff. But in negotiations, I believe Deleuze is talking about, it may be in dialogues, I have to look back, but he's talking about Heidegger and he's like, you know, is Heidegger a bit of a Nazi? Yes, of course. Right? Like, yeah. Deleuze is like, like sure, you know, this yeah. is back in the, the 70s when Deleuze is like, oh yeah. But Deleuze is like, look, I'm not interested in that. That's its own, that's a more histor- historiographical question. I'm interested in the way that Heidegger reactivates the question of the history of philosophy. And I think that's, if you're right about Deleuze not begrudgingly, as you say, inserting Heidegger into different repetition, it's the fact that Heidegger reactivates the question of the role of the history of philosophy and the way in which each philosophy kind of reactivates not only the question of philosophy itself, but a, a, a kind of metaphilosophical investigation about the role of problems, questions. What is 
thinking, if you will, for Deleuze, it's a different answer and it's a different way of solving and it's involved with the event, right? It takes a different lineage than Heidegger. Yeah. And so I always found that that way of framing the thing where it's like, look, obviously the shiny keys, the piece of candy over here is Heidegger's Nazism and we can get fascinated by that. And that's its own thing that we have to deal with, sure. But I think for Deleuze, the way that Heidegger brings up the question of the history of philosophy, I think entices Deleuze more because that itself can constitute a series of questions and answers, a series of determining problems that can raise the issue in a way that can bring food to thought, whereas Heidegger's Nazism can just lead to negations. It can. I, I mean, I think there's there's the Nazism question where mm -hmm. did he or did he not have affiliations with National Socialism? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the empirical question. Yes. But the deeper question, I think, even though Deleuze thinks that's not his domain or, and on Deleuze and Guattari still in, in what is philosophy, as you know, they are concerned with microfascisms yes. and fascism as a form of thinking, right? And that's yes. where if Heidegger is a Nazi at the empirical level, it's because there's something about that important problem of philosophy that mm -hmm. flirts always with fascism. Right. Yes. That's the question of the proper, because you can start with the Heideggerian problem is no one's really thinking, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. a diagnostic problem. Speaking of Ian Buchanan, not because like speaking not of Not because fascist, he's a fascist. Yeah. 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 No, um, he recently made this point that everyone goes, Deleuze and Guattari are not about lack. But that that gives you this sort of Everything is awesome. Everything is becoming. It's that's everything is awesome. Everything yeah. is awesome, right? Yeah. But it's not because they clearly think something is wrong, right? Yes. You know, yes. Right? There's clearly something to be addressed in Antiedipus, from Antiedipus to what is philosophy. It's variously in Antiedipus. Why do people mistake desire? Like mistake their own desires. Why are people constantly, yes. you know, the political problem? Why are people in, and I think there's somewhere, you know, about self-enslavement, right? But there's a fascist solution to that, which is to just drive a bus through. Like you don't know what's good for you. Therefore, right, yep. I yep. as philosopher king am simply going to dictate the form of the proper, which yep. is to destroy culture in its present form and get back to what you really want. And I think that comes out clearly in Heidegger, right? All these things that you're seduced by, you oughtn't to be, and there's some form of authentic proper return. Yeah, authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Authenticity becomes some sort of drive to the return to the proper. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, it's how do you negotiate saying thinking is not taking place without installing some form of the proper. And, you know, the, where the philosopher king comes in and says, here's what thinking properly right. is. Now, did they actually solve that problem? I don't 
think so, but they at least tried to wrench the problem away from the idea that there is something called proper thinking and we need to find it or regain it. It's, yeah, yeah. What we have currently is improper thinking, right? It's not really, it's cliche, it's communication, it's banality. What would count as thinking is not some version of proper thinking, right? you saying banality makes me think of Pascal, right? Where I know that that's not a big reference for Deleuze, but that makes me think of Pascal's uh, notion that evil is this kind of infinite banality and that's i think that's that's part of the 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 notion where you're right where even if they don't solve it and that's okay they help to reframe and re-problematize the question and it's in that that we regain a certain dimension of power because it's it's for the list it's always look the problems that we're given when we're when we're quote unquote students, the kind of bad problematic of thinking is we're sort of giving these questions and problems that we have to solve on a a test. We have to circle in A, B, C, D that deprives us of power because we aren't the ones determining the problem itself, right? We are we're sort of given the problems that are ready made for us. And so I think that that way of framing it is an interesting way of approaching these things and honestly claire i'm so excited to just keep talking about deleuze with you but i know that we have your book to talk about and i think that we can carry this energy on as we delve deeper into you told me i'm just making sure hasn't been published yet is it out i think it's out yes it's out for the populace okay so like in time for Christmas or <laughs> Thanksgiving gifts, I don't know. I know that when we talked, because we, we started talking around early June, maybe May, and um, you were saying it was forthcoming and you yeah, gra- graciously yeah. graciously gave us the uh, the forward copy. So, okay, so it is out. Yeah. And, and Coop, I'm also saying this for your sanity because I know – Claire and I were getting into the weeds. We're getting a little bit like a little bit out of that, that jouissance talking about. Um, no, I think stuff. it. Ta- I think it segues <laughs> perfectly into uh, the cinematic mm-hmm. ontology. Actually, this is a this is a phrase that that Coop has come up with because we just did Virilio's War in Cinema before talking with you, and there are a lot of interesting, I mean, interesting uh, connections. I'm thinking specifically about. For example, your your analysis of of a, a film like Nope, but you're also this question, which can maybe segue us, if you will, Coop, to, to give it back to Claire, because you do answer this in the text. But do you want to say maybe a little bit for the audience who hasn't read the book, where or what prompted, I mentioned some of your earlier, I say earlier, but it's very recent, your earlier works in what 2015 17 18 uh-huh. your essays on extinction do you want to say a little bit about where this title this question comes from who would you kill to save the world do you want to right. segue us into talking about your very recently published book i'll start with that title and then go back to essays in extinction so okay good jordan peele's film us right okay. i yeah. think is a profound 
metaphysical existential text. Um, have I ever met Jordan Peele? Like, no. Do I want to? No, in case, right? Uh, it turns out that I'm completely wrong because that doesn't matter, right? The film is what it is and it's a profound metaphysical investigation in yes. which it's a classic horror film in which mm -hmm. they are out to get you and they're yep. your double. But the film ends with a woman, apart from killing her own children, which is sort of interesting, having to kill her own self in order to survive. Yes. And the desire of the film, so this is maybe the cinematic ontology component, right? Who you are and what you desire is affected by watching the film, right? We watch things all the time where people are being killed, right? Yes, and yes. we desire their killing, right, all the time. The most moralistic films include the desire to kill someone. Saving Private Ryan, I just off the top of my head, but... James Bond films, right? James like Bond films, uh, the recent, because I just flew back from Australia, you know, you watch every blockbuster there. The recent Black Panther film, you have to kill off these pseudo now, pseudo indigenous peoples. Avatar, yeah. you, you that was another film you, you analyzed. Avatar, right? It's so the, it then turns out, right, the twist at the end of us is that the person you think is doing the killing is actually the person who was killed, right? That's the. Is actually the, the doppelganger, right? The doppelganger. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It's like that undoes the self-other distinction because yes. who you are is the person who's doing the killing. So that that is where the type I, I actually watched that film and I thought that is not just that film, it's every film is it's every about, film. Okay, okay. Is about the destruction of the other that constitutes your right to life. And then going back to essays on extinction, it's the case, right? We are in the, I mean, this was perhaps less the case when I wrote the book or started writing the book. It's the case that we're living in the 21st century. We've got the planet to a state where there is almost certainly going to be mass misery and suffering, right? Kim Stanley Robinson opens ministry the future with this scene of like impending ecocide we've brought the world to the point where just suffering and barbarism is built into it right it's not yeah. an accident in the way like the lisbon was an accident and you could ask well, how could god be so cruel to produce this earthquake it's not oh my god there's an earthquake how do we justify this this is how do we justify ourselves right is yes. now like the yes. human question and what amazes me is that a lot of human philosophers think that we can justify ourselves quite quite simply because the idea is well you know there was it's true things have not been great in the past mm -hmm. but clearly we can turn this around clearly right um peter singer you, 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 you can imagine Singer, right? you can imagine a kind of ethical absolutely thing we're not so bad we're not right, so bad. no and all we have to do is adjust the scales a bit at late right yep or my philosophical bet noir is nick bostrom at future of humanity institute at oxford 
who says, look, the number one problem facing us today is existential risk. And it's true that the Holocaust, and he mentions, he refers to it as the Spanish flu, true that we lost a lot of lives, but if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, we recover. Uh, mm-hmm. What's really problematic is losing intelligence. Now, he sounds like, to me, that sounds like an extreme. Oh, uh, you, you go hard on, on Bostrom. I go I mean, hard on him because I think he captures the logic of every. It's eugenicist logic. I mean, right? this is it's Nick Land's current logic. logic, too. We were speaking yeah, of Nick is... Land earlier. This is his thing, too, is like yeah. the machinic intelligence is the. Yes. Right. And as long as intelligence survives, everything's going to be OK. Now, that would be I wouldn't harp on it so much if I thought it was just some extreme position from Oxford privilege. I mean, there was some media event where someone dug up a racist email from him from ages ago and i'm like you think this is news right 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 right, right, right. Like, oh my god nick bostrom made a, a racist, racist a racist tweet from nick land oh my yeah, god like, who did, no one saw that coming but this is the logic of a lot of what passes as post-humanism which yeah. is okay. it's true that things have been a little grimy in the past and I would say some readings of Deleuze, but look, mm-hmm. you know, everything is awesome, right? We had this potentiality to regroup, regrow, be creative, and it misses, it just completely erases, right, the malevolence that is everywhere around us that makes our existence possible. The question, who who would you kill to you save kill, right? machinic intelligence or whatever yeah. you wanted to read? Yeah, as long as everything continues, it's fine, right? So, right. so yes, there's been a lot of it, destruction and barbarism, racism, slavery, colonialism, dot, 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 right? But the idea is that by looking back at that past, there can be some redeemed future. Mm-hmm. And this cannot be an opinion, right? How can you possibly whitewash actuality? Here is the history of the world. What gives you this inalienable right to life and futurity other than a failure to look at what is actually the case? And so that's where this notion of it's of a virtual humanity, mm. not in Deleuze's sense, but a virtual humanity. Whatever humanity is, it's never been what actually took place, right? It's what we ought to have been. So every, nearly every US film about slavery, mm. there's always look at those people back then who did this I can shed a tear about that now because I know that we are no longer that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't see the evidence. I'd want to see some evidence that we are no longer that. I mean, I think this is where someone like, um, I mean, I I think you may mention it. I'm trying to think if you do, I I may be wrong. Or maybe I was reading your book and I, I texted Coop because he and I are always like, we get excited about uh, the the books we're reading. And um, I may have mentioned to Coop about Django Unchained, where 
it kind of tries to take some of your ideas and subvert the uh the notion about us as being better right yeah. where, uh where it, it, it kind i'm not saying that it totally flouts what you're doing and and we haven't really even started to dig into but you've provided a, a nice intro but you know where you know tarantino's film is kind of trying to follow some of the points you're you're making and at each point is trying to say that no we're we're not necessarily better and but but at the same time we may exult in the rise of Django and his revenge right on all of his on slavery for example as you mentioned and may celebrate him as a figure that's saying that that reconfirms your point where it's like oh we're we're better now yeah also, who would you kill to save the world, in a sense, for Django, I think, too? Yes, it's, plays it's a, role. a huge role, right? Um, and part of that, going back to your phrase, I don't know what you meant by it, but cinematic ontology, is that it's not that there's a world and cinema somehow represents or captures that. Right. It's that what counts as a world worth saving and what counts as who we are is produced cinematically. Yes. And that's before cinema exists explicitly as an yep. industry. Absolutely. It exists by who is taking command of viewing the world, who is viewed as an object, right? 100%, um, yes. And that's produced through various forms of technology, right? And the, the later, later versions of that technology are cinema explicitly, but in i think this is in the book you know in paradise lost milton takes not milton well milton depicts adam after the fall looking back on all of history and seeing the devastation and he goes well just kill me now humanities you know milton actually asked the question like why does humanity have the right to exist given how Barbarous history's been. He's writing at a time of revolution, right? He's writing at a time of Cromwell. Uh, uh, Cromwell. Cromwell. Yeah, but also there's the possibility of a genuinely collective, stateless society, right? That doesn't take place, right? So what do you do when there's been a revolution to achieve the overthrowing of the state? People might be starting to think. And then they say, no, you have to think, how can humans go on self-enslaving, right? Yeah. And uh, Adam's like, yeah, just just end it now. Humans just sh shouldn't exist. And then the theological answer comes in, but don't worry, don't worry. It's not always going to mm. be like this. You have reason and reason is going to give you your proper future, which is yeah. paradise, right? Paradise is where we're all rational paradise lost paradise regained yeah right? that, that's the the vision and paradise regained is recognizing that you enslaved yourselves by not thinking and that all you need to do is think and talk and reason and you'll find your proper humanity right you know it's so interesting you bring this up because we just had a an episode on um etienne de la Buetti and he his <laughs> kind of thing is like hey if you just, if the, the populace just recalls their consent to 
the tyrant, then they'll fall like a Colossus whose pedestal has been, you know, uh, swept beneath them. Yeah. And in theory, and just talking about it, it seems so simple. And perhaps to a certain extent, theoretically, again, it seems so simple to instigate. It is theoretically, but everything in cat. So I, I just at the last Deleuze conference heard an amazing paper by Nick Cloburn who wrote like the book on Deleuze and Marx. And his claim is like the proletarian is not the proletariat is not the working class, right? The proletariat doesn't exist because capitalism does everything it can to undo the sense of we subjected of a class, right. right? What it does is constantly undo the possibility of what you just referred to, reflecting that you gave your consent. Instead of you gave your consent, <laughs> right, this was an act that took place where you transferred sovereignty. Instead of that being made explicit, everything in capitalism work, works to distract that event <coughs> of theoretical awareness so you're right theoretically it would be simple it's so fucking obvious all the time right that there has been this passing over of desire right this abandonment of desire and and, and it's I think obvious that's... but the the obviousness of, of it is totally undone by attention capturing technologies yep. cinema that's kind of the theme of the book that we're discussing and one last thing before we we can move on is um you know in anti-oedipus we had a episode with uh, ray brazier who took issue with some of the themes of anti-oedipus where they say something very similar to what you just mentioned about the um there's only one class it's the bourgeoisie right they are the ones kind of running things and it's their rules and regulations and program and the proletariat for them is what they call the the outclass, the whore class, right? The not whore in the sense of prostitution, but in the sense of outside. They're outside yeah. of of class. And you know, for Ray, he thought of this as an abandonment of sort of classical Marxist frameworks. But I think that in a certain sense, I think that that's that just shows a shift where they are moving away from the analysis of ideological frameworks, for example, I'll to say, and obviously Marx and, and otherwise, they're moving away from the analysis based on ideology, because for them, that's kind of a false problem. They're trying to get back to this bedrock of what they call desire, which they try to revamp and renew in a thousand plateaus and etc. But I always took it as that perhaps Again, I'm not speaking for Ray or, or against him, really, but I, I didn't necessarily take it as a way of denying class struggle, but of reframing it in a way that the struggle is more fundamental and it's not about all the, all the, being... Yeah. All that when you refer to class, there's a class that doesn't exist, right? That that um one way to think about the proletariat, it's not the working class as a concrete body of laborers right mm -hmm. um, so that shifting it to think the proletariat as if this could gain consciousness right if this collective mm -hmm. could gain consciousness um 
then there would be some collective awareness, right? It's mm-hmm. not about individual apprehension, right? It would be about some formation that could exist outside forms of capitalist design. Right, right. Um, and so that would make sense of the phrase the people are missing, right? Yes. And why Deleuze and Guattari don't refer to. This was this was Nick Thoban's point, which struck me as just true in terms of Deleuze and Guattari's scholarship, but also insightful in terms of what actually is the case, yeah. right? There is no working class in the image we would have of a unionised body of workers who have a clear idea of a political struggle and possible outcomes. That does not exist, or if it does exist, that's not the po- the uh, proletariat, right? The proletariat is what would happen if this mass desire that's constant that's constantly being undone by capital, right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. could reflect upon, seize upon its own desire. Yeah, um... right? and that would that would you know that's when you get a non Heideggerian version of like what might it be to get thinking to take place, right? And it certainly right. wouldn't be going back and reading a lot of Plato. <laughs> um, this, this, this was a, a thing that, that kept coming to mind, and I have it, I actually wrote it down because it struck me reading your book where you said the people are missing, but I, I kept thinking of the the people to come, right? The becoming, Devonair to Le Mans, right? Like the becoming right. of everything, of everybody. I kept thinking of the people to come was a theme in your book that you didn't, obviously you're, you're, you were writing in a way that was talking to everyone, everybody. It wasn't necessarily trying to put these things in, in Deleuze speak, but I was kind of translating in my head, thinking about your background and thinking about obviously my own little fetish uh, of, yeah. of uh, I was trying to think about the people to come would perhaps be the target audience for this question that you pose in the title of your book about who would you kill to save the world? Or not, because I think you can think of the people to come has this redemptive um, posthumanist notion that it's true that if you look back at the history of humanity or at least at the Western humanity or what has called itself humanity, right, which is the better way to think about it because if you added up all the human bodies in the world, not all of them identify with this thing that has called itself humanity, right? Right. But, but um, if we look back at that history of so-called or soi-disant humanity, it always justifies itself by what it will be. And that is fascist, right? That is yes, yes. Uh, a, a sense that there is a proper futurity that we have an absolute right to and that that end dictates the means. And I think the forms of posthumanism that immediately sees upon a we that has a right to life that isn't them, mm, where them yeah. is those capitalists, as we say in Australia, they need to take a good, long, hard look at themselves mm-hmm. because that we that has a right to life, that has a clear enemy, capitalism, right, is a form of 
microfascism, right? Yeah. It has, if I could just clear away this enemy, I would be my proper self, as opposed to what's micropolitics really? Looking at the microfascisms that compose us, right? Yeah, the cop in our heads. Yeah, is. right, that if I could just, and I think this has like really concrete implications. If you look how lazy politics became or is in the era of Donald Trump, it's if I could just get rid of that orange monster, racism will be over. Right. Now, I was not speaking for you two. I feel that seductive impulse in myself, right? I, I recently became a citizen here and I was able to vote. I've never been that good a voter, like in Australia where it's compulsory. I've been known to fail to vote. I won't tell the, uh, oh, don't the authorities. Tell I won't don't tell the authorities. Okay. Oh, I got fined, right? So, you know, yes, the I... authorities knew. But I think that this notion of a people to come in, in in the very abstract has really concrete political implications in that mm. if one feels that humanity is pretty much okay if we could just eliminate X, right? This makes sense. Right. Then the, the people to come will be this virtual and therefore proper humanity so i think that people are missing right is better because right, that's never going to right the people are missing is that proper humanity just doesn't ever really take place the way you put that kind of reminds me of um something in being an event but do you know he's talking about belonging and inclusion there's right. al there's always this missing element whether it yes. be the the uh, undocumented that's its own thing that uh we could we could go into but you know it's funny coop I, I i'll i'm putting you on the spot here i know that i've in the last election i was kind of like look man i don't like this guy i'm just gonna do my part I'm in Georgia, which is a kind of it's purple because it's got the the purple Atlanta is blue, but so much of where I grew up kind of like Coop is a uh, is red. So I, I, you know, I voted against Trump just to be yeah, honest. You, I mean, that's that's the I think there's, uh, you know, there's a molar politics, which that yes, is. Yes, right? yes, yes. Uh, this is the game we're in and you wouldn't want to be so sanctimonious, right? to only play like i think there's that line in not that it matters that much what deleuze and Watari think but there's that line about yeah you know you got to play the game of women's struggles right you don't right. Yep. give that up um that's part of it but there's also micro politics yep which would be and i mean i think the the, the women's struggles example was interesting it's like yeah you know i'll do what i can for feminist politics but don't then cover over all the forms of racism and transphobia that are yep. intrinsic to feminism, right? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I'll vote for this, right? But don't don't believe that those molar political struggles are going to really shift anything at the level of desire. And the level you're, of desire right. comes in when you recognise that actually changing the face <laughs> at the top doesn't change the structure of desire right it's not about electing the right person right? yeah the problem yeah, yeah. is in, the problem is the investment in any person right yeah the, 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 any the, person right even if it's cornell west right i mean you're right and he's uh he's 
he's i mean gosh lately he's he's kind of that's a whole that's a whole can of worms it's a whole can of worms but the idea would be it let's assume let's assume it's not a can of worms right and there is Mm -hmm. this uh let's not look too closely and just assume there's this incredibly awesome person the problem would be it's still a politics of the face and the state and right right that um x will save us and x will save us because who we are is intrinsically fine if it weren't Mm. for right if we could just get rid of x the people in the south donald trump uh the republicans right but whatever that we who we are remains like all we need to do is kill off x and we're golden you're answering the fundamental question about the the meaning of of the title of your book uh over and over that's an interesting thing that you bring up and coop i was going to go to you uh so just let me finish this thought and then i'll seed the day in i believe it's the apparatus of capture plateau where they they kind of go into this about how you know obviously they've already they're already elaborating on the concepts of the minoritarian on becoming woman and these other things which you've written on and you've which i'm sure you could speak on at length it's that it's not that struggling on the level of the molar is bad or should be given up completely right they don't say that that's um something to deny it's merely that you know for them as you said it starts you you might want to say like politics starts at home or or some shit right like that, that some kind of truism where it's you know it does begin with changing our means of conceiving you know again micropolitically uh or politics starts with not politics starts at home but politics starts with homelessness like what would you how would mm. you act if you could somehow not universalize your attachments right mm. like if you mm-hmm. could imagine a world without you in it <laughs> and by yeah you, all the things that you think are absolutely sacrosanct like the university and the humanities and mm-hmm. maybe those aren't prima facie worth saving or unquestionably worth saving or mm-hmm. you know like what if saving the united states <laughs> were yeah, yeah something one were not unquestionably attached to right so i think that's you see that in uh indifference and repetition when Deleuze talks about fate and says usually fate is associated with a lack of freedom. Like, no, actually, if you thought of ultimately everything passes away, right, that's the beginning of freedom, right? It's I'm no longer, like, attached to saving myself. It's maybe a stoic idea, but it's the beginning of micropolitics, right, which is not moving the pieces we already have on the checkerboard chessboard whatever game we're playing but um there is no board there's no game anymore affirming the whole of chance where exactly i i don't i and my attachments and my my personal desires don't necessarily come back in some sort of heaven or in some sort of right that's where we affirm the extremes and it's it's hard um it's it's so hard right yes it's, so it's difficult, but as you say, that's the way to defeat the 
I'll put this in your mouth, but I'm not trying to, but that's how we defeat the, the cop in our head. That is, yeah, that is making us affirm the 14 words of, you know, I got to secure a future for my people and my kind. It's, it's, I mean, this is what the Liz Guattari kind of say over and over again in Anti-Oedipus when they talk about becoming, when they talk about the legitimate synthesis of consumption, consummation, when they talk about how it's about being of a bastard race for all eternity. It's not about affirming that I am a part of the blessed Aryan race and that's what needs to be saved, yeah, right? It's, that's right. I'm just ancillary and alongside the machines. Yes. I am just a and, kind and of a effect. Of, yeah, and that goes back to maybe class consciousness. It's to embrace mm. not the will of the people, right, but to embrace a form of destitution and... Mm -hmm on self-consciousness right and what it might be to no longer have an attachment to a proper image of humanity and that would be if people are missing right i i was going to put it on coop because i know you have your thoughts about molar politics but i will say we can since you're you're governing us if you will we can move forward or we can jump off of uh the next the next spot I would just like to bring up that I think that maybe there's something in a micro-fascist sense about the cinematic ontology. The whole structure of it automatically traps you into this idea of the mess this messianic figure of rationality and so forth, which goes back to the ancient Egyptians, um, even in the sense of not only the collective investment of the social into the figure of the pharaoh as the one who brings renewal and rebirth to society as a whole but the way that the egyptians also in their sort of frescoes you don't say cinematic ontology that's me putting words in your mouth but <laughs> i think it is there you mentioned earlier that the technology now obviously exists but the egyptians were certainly i think trying to represent movement in their frescoes so i think this sort of position or this like the cinematic ontology is not necessarily something that's new. It's something that's been around humanity for quite some time. Oh, absolutely. Um, the the you know what's um it's interesting you mentioned Egyptians and frescoes because this idea for me was inspired by uh, Stigler Bernard Stigler and his conception that time is the experience of who we are, like being being someone who can say who I am, comes through technologies. And those technologies can be something as simple as a teacup because then there's something stored there that I know to pick it up, to put it down, to pour tea into it. So it's stored time. Right, and his, yeah. his references is to cave paintings because when I look at that, I don't just see that it's a picture of a animal I can hunt, I can see that someone else had mm -hmm. that desire. But just your reference to the Egyptians, right, is an action and movement. There's a book I think that was heavily, well, it was very influential for Deleuze Guattari, Voringer's Abstraction and Empathy, right, okay. which is about forms of art that are organic, like I look at a human form and I feel, right, mm -hmm. um, Versus abstraction, 
a pyramid, are geometric shapes, which are a different form of apprehension. And if you think about what Deleuze and Guattari were trying to do with cinema, if we take your phrase cinematic ontology, right, there's something about looking at faces and movement and a coherent world of action that gives you a desire, a teleological shape. I want the I want the body I'm looking at to stay alive. I want it to triumph over adversity, right, point of view, em- empathy. But then there's cinema that destroys that, right? It's just that we don't see it in cinema very often and we don't want to watch it, right, which is the cinema that tears narrative apart, that destroys empathy, that doesn't give you coherent narrative time. You know, that's why... I guess Deleuze celebrates avant-garde cinema. But I think that really raises a problem for like the 21st century because it makes no sense for us, like us three here, to say, well, the answer to capitalism and sympathetic forms of post-humanism that just want to be maintain one's attachments, right? If, I, if I'm nice enough to nature and animals, I'll, I'll stay alive. You can't advocate avant-garde cinema as a way of destroying that can you I don't think you can I think that makes no sense like we've all got to go back and watch um some Tarkovsky that that has a sort of fascistic tone to it right like I'm going to advocate the forms of cinema that will detach you from your interests so it becomes what sort of political forms what sort of political aesthetics would sort of counter that narcissistic cinematic ontology where we're all just investing in images of ourselves I was talking to a friend last night, shout out to Griffin for bringing this to my attention. He's a big um, Werner Herzog fan and uh, he was was going through Herzog's, if you will, manifesto, but I don't know what you call it, uh, his screed against cinema verite. And I was kind of digging into how the the lambasting against cinema verite as though one as though the screen or the the eye of the camera could be objective neutral yeah. uh disinterested could sort of escape from whether it be ideology or an image of thought that did not have any desire or any perspective as though perspective could yeah. be yeah, it's the dream of the archive free. Like you could have, you know, fat right. free, you know, sugar free, and then right. archive free. It just is. You know, it's pure presence, unmediated. And so um, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit about what you were trying to get at with I guess, you know, you were you were putting us us as the viewer front and center, but if we kind of take uh Coop's notion of cinematic ontology as though the, the the director were not giving us the the vantage as though it were just sort of context free and it's it's very insidious and obviously you can see this in various types of art whether it be social realism or uh again in uh, various types of image of thought that claim to have no presuppositions and we think about the yeah the, the start of image of thought chapter where it's like well Descartes starts with you know I think therefore I am and gets rid of perhaps subjective presuppositions but has these objective presuppositions embedded in them where it's like well not a, what about the transcendental idiot who's like 
who asked the question that no one's willing to ask, which is like, what does it mean to think? What does it mean to be? Right. So I kind of see some of those, uh, not perspectives, those um, ideas, let's just say, in, yeah. in, in the framework of your book, which kind of puts us, again, us, I say us, not necessarily the royal we, but um, us as whether it be subjects or yeah. whatnot. Uh, front and center and saying like what about our attachments as i'll use your word that you've been saying here you don't really say that in the book but what about our attachments what about our you know ways of clinging to something to hold on to that if we could just exercise and ward off sort of this problematic other that isn't a part of us right as though yeah. it's it's not what if we could just exercise that other and uh, we would save ourselves? That would be the way of reframing your book. Like, who could we kill off to save ourselves? Right. That would be perhaps like a kind of reframing of the title yeah. of your book that yeah. you call into question. Correct. Yes. What about the camera as the inscription surface through light? And, you know, we talked about in. Virilio's war in cinema, the way that to tie this to who do we need to kill, right? With regard to warfare, like it's mm -hmm. light that exposes who we can kill. Right. And it's just sort of interesting. It is interesting and crucial because the war is really at the level of techniques and the technologies that compose us because it's what we see and what we think are effects of technology, whether that's the technology of language or gesture or right, yeah. books we have in the archive we have. And so the, I think one of the earlier comments, was it, wasn't Lazarado, but someone else where we're, there's talking about this technically, you know, some reflection on the constant machinations of the capitalist machine to preclude apprehension of itself, right? So this exactly. is the fact that we're organised bodies gives us our little world, right, our ready-made world and our attachments. And so the clearest example is how the cinematic I, E-Y-E, but also I, right, gives one a very meaningful world it gives one a narrative world right where there is clear good and evil and that's our current technological landscape as well like nothing is more moral than social media and not just because you get uh, algorithms that keep repeating you back to yourself right or allow for an antagonism but it's become a game of it's become a game rather than absolute chance, right? So it has become point scoring and with its own metrics, right? And that's also what I would mean by a cinematic ontology as well. I just think that is a really good phrase because it's not that there's an ontology of cinema, although that's another thing, right? Yeah. We've looked at, but it's that what counts as existing is the effect of the technologies that produce the scene, right, mm -hmm. for us. There's something like I know 
Ronciere, that's his shtick, right, about what's apprehendable and what can be seen, right? But uh, I think the, the question of technologies has to go, like, to a more profound level than, let's say, just the cinematic camera in its narrow sense and the, the archive of technologies that compose us from language to screens to the spaces we inhabit. Yeah, I think there's something to do with just like the notion of inscription and like capturing desire. Yes. Lazzarato talks about how there's this the machinic enslavement aspect, which is at the at the molar level. It, there's an omnipotence to capitalism. And I think that omnipotence is like this collective everyone and no one is the director of capitalism, right? Like it is a multiplicity that yes. we all sort of almost like the little like monads on the sort of celestial Leibnizian body without organs. Like we all have our little component section of the reality that we're creating that all sort of gets jumbled together as this, a big continuity of, of reality of uh, that sort of. Yes. And that they, those like, Every the big other does not exist. There is no capitalist other that's pulling the strings of the right. Uh, it's just that there is a machine. It's composed from, as you said, like a thousand tiny apprehensions. Right, that no one is the author of. Right, that's it's an authorless, godless, groundless multiplicity. Right, there there is no big C capitalist out there. It's not. Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. I was going to say, or the Jews, which is like, right. Exactly. The, the big other does not, the other does not exist. Right. That's, and I think there's, there's two ways you can take it. You can take it in the, the sort of negative Lacanian sense, right? The other does not exist. So you just have to sort of shut the fuck up and <laughs> with this alienation, or you have that question of Deleuze, how can you compose an apprehension of that? Those tiny little, perceptions that compose the whole and that gets you back to micro politics and the things that you can do to take command of the techniques and they're always going to have to be guerrilla tactics aren't they right like the state only exists in this coagulation of a machine and all you can try and do is like undo these machinic coagulations to piggyback off what you said we had Andrew Culp on who, whose recent book is about guerrilla tactics. And uh, I'll give a shout out to our sort of brother quote, sister podcast, Acid Horizon, whose new book is coming out about, um, right. Ocular. You know, yeah. I would Anti-oculus, say yeah. anti-oculus. Oh, wow. So that's awesome. With the listen Guattari, it's, there is a strategy of becoming imperceptible that's involved that may even go to the heart of your book. That could be a way of summing up where, you know, instead of perpetually making ourselves perceptible to the screen or to the camera eye or to ourselves and putting ourselves front and center, there is this notion of becoming imperceptible probe head, whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah, using larval subject. Larval subjects, right? Exactly. Where, whereby we are not perpetually like, what do you say? Uh, centering our own narcissism 
right? There is a sense in which your book too is about insofar as we are trying to kill the fascist in our head, the cop in our head, there's also a sense in which we are trying to undo the narcissist in our psyche, in our soul. Yes. Um, and I think that's, yeah. and one way to talk about that would be the deprivatization of desire, right? It's to undo the sense that your desires are your own. They're authored by yourself. They're right. Aunt, right there's a thing as we're plugging books geordie i don't know if you know geordie rosenberg's confessions of the fox no no amazing novel even though it's a novel i think it's the best theorization of the privatization of mm. desire precisely because it's if you think about one of the arguments arguments against identity politics like the bad arguments against identity politics that you're trying to take political issues like broader political issues and turn them into just questions of speaking as a woman right as though identity is something you own whereas of course to be able to say that right to be able to have an identity is the outcome of so many complicated desiring machines that you don't own right and that that would mean deprivatizing deprivatizing yes that's a word desire and thinking about the way the capacity to be an organized body with desires and a sexual identity is the outcome of a geopolitical history state history i'm going to put a strong recommend on that book yeah i mean um... and maybe as a future guest also oh. scholar who happened to write a novel, so primarily. Well, we'll have to, since you recommended, we'll have to follow up on that. I'm just uh, thinking. Totally. When you talked about deprivatization, I was thinking about, uh, gosh, I think it's the, the very first section of chapter three of Andy Edwards where they talk about Correct, the, yeah. The, the anus is the first organ to be privatized, yeah. right? Yes, like, right? Like uh, we can't was... have, we can't have the flows of life be seen as the flows of life right they have mm -hmm. to be owned controlled and you know held to be one's own it's a crazy line in anti-oedipus and that's probably you know they were reading a lot of Arto at the time right? yeah right but it's crazy but sometimes like you just pause and the fact that it is so crazy is possibly what means you ought to take it seriously because it's yeah. thinkable to, you know, the, to to imagine a world in which the flows of the body were not one's own. Guattari goes on and on about this, not just because he worked at Laborde where it, it is collective analysis, but he, he, he tries to reiterate over and over again how fantasies are group fantasies they're not our own little individual private cinemas in our head yeah exactly uh, he tries to reiterate how and again this kind of goes back to it how we desire to um to sort of fuck and be fucked by the socius right like this yes. is kind of and again we can we can pause at these jokes even the opening lines of andy oedipus were like it shits it fucks it you know like it, it was a what do they say the id right to ever to ever yes. said the id is a problem in and of itself we can laugh at that and whisk it away because it does present 
us with these thoughts that are alien normally to the dogmatic to to the normal image of thought right so yeah you know that's that's good we will i'll definitely take what, what was her what was jordy rosenberg oh, jordy, jordy the fox okay well i'd recommend okay i will try to and if you are familiar with them in uh in real life you can help set us up but otherwise absolutely i do know that we want to talk about a few more things about your book before we close i was talking about uh villas and guattari in my statements in the doc so we've already done that uh we can we can get to your some of your stuff if you'd like i think a lot of the themes in the book because i have this obsession with with dune which i think oh, touches wow. on a, a lot of the same things because it's about being perceived by the oracle who is also the messianic figure but that also gets subverted in the way that this uh desire to not be perceived by by higher dimensional beings that can that passively as the viewer being passively viewed sort of robs us of a certain agency right. or, or something like that um yeah that's, that's in a sort of constructivist way i guess which i think would go to the sort of anti-ocularity thing that reminds but, there's a passage in sarts being a nothingness where mm -hmm. And Sartre is like, has read all his Hegel, really, you know, like really hardcore, that you can't just have God-like existence. I'm God, there's nothing other than me. I'm just God, right? Pure presence. You have to have be God and be recognised as being God, right? So that's Hegel, right? Like you can't just have being. You have to have being that recognises itself. But you have to have being that recognises itself. So that it has to be a circle, right? So that would end up with, the liberal state where we're all rational, we all recognise each other as rational, you're human, I'm human, everyone is human, we're humans in recognition, closed circle. The nightmare is that something else is watching us and when right, that, that alien apprehension, right? But, of course, that circle is never closed, right? We are never in command of what views us and we're certainly never in command of the way we view ourselves, right? Just in the simple, no one actually sees themselves when they look in a mirror, right? It's a thousand others looking at us. So there's, going back to Sartre, Sartre says, it's the desire to be God, to be able to look at oneself and apprehend oneself without any alterity. And he says, it's a futile, right? He says, yeah. Yeah, like a, futile desire and then of course writes the rest of the book is like you got to be the person looking and not be the okay well maybe that bit in being a nothingness is not not so great but he did understand why i love that section he did understand this desire to be look at and looked at at once and fully in command of yourself and that is this post-human desire right to apprehend oneself and be in command of oneself and not have anything alien or inassimilable or beyond apprehension. See, I think that's the position of the director of the film too, because I mean, having done some shorts, when you're editing a film that you've shot, you really are putting yourself in the position of being the creator of being a God of this like micro really? yes. world. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the very narcissistic jouissance to taking the discontinuity of chaos and like 
manipulating it into something that can be mobilizing the powers of the false to be this this mirage of continuity that all makes sense and is total and and all encompassing but to build on this i don't know if you this is going to switch gears a little bit but i think this is very relevant have you seen these are you familiar with tiktok video this has been blowing up on social media over the last couple of weeks and it's what's referred to as npc videos so npcs like in video games are sort of the passive characters who just like you'll bump up to them and they have sort of a scripted response so they don't really have any agency no beyond players. like yeah beyond non, non-player like, characters yeah yeah exactly yeah. non-playable characters and so they have this kind of scripted response etc so now on tiktok you have influencers that do participate in this passive way of responding to inputs from the people watching the video and so they get paid should, for it they get did i like maybe i should like bring this up and play this on the I mean, so it, you can kind of see i think to really yeah i want to i want to say this they get paid imagine if there were various ways that the viewers could click on it looks like an emoji but it's basically ways of paying the live streamer the npc as they're called so like they click on an ice cream an ice cream emoji and they get paid what is it like two three four cents and they have a stock response the one that went went viral is uh a beautiful female right so we can talk about the object of desire and and whatnot i know that there's no sound here but you can kind of see someone just clicked an ice cream thing and she's kind of almost robotically responding to so like the ice cream emoji gets things yeah. she does the, the lick like like i'm licking so the object cream. speaks back yeah the commodity speak isn't like the commodity is speaking back the fetishized commodity is speaking yeah yeah back. right right that that's a good way to put it right there's a way of embodying the uh giving voice to the non like playing the non-player giving voice to the object exactly objectivizing right putting a face back on yeah and again as i said it's not a it's not a coincidence that the one who went viral or made this go broad broader consciousness is a beautiful woman right who already who is already objectified who's already but it's also it's an interesting example because she's blonde but not white, which also, right, right, like you've got historical sensibilities about what counts as a face of desire and what yeah. counts as an object <clears throat> rather than a subject, right? An exploitable, um, an exploitable object, right? Right, yeah. and and there would have been, what you know, there would have been how many decades ago the impossibility of anything other than a white blonde face right yeah that right and now what counts as the facialization of desire changes but you know one way to <laughs> my way of looking at that would be just the ongoing commodification and se- subjective like anything can become a organized mm. and speak right and be humanized Right. I think that's, you know, this is probably a generational thing that you're looking at like TikTok videos. And I, with horror, the Facebook equivalent is these reels, 
where people give voices to their dogs, right? And it's again, yeah, okay. This, you know, it, it's the Oedipalization of mm -hmm. everything, right? Um, you know, the only way to apprehend something is to give it a voice and include its voice in an already given commodified co conversation about recognizable desire. And speaking on this topic, and Coop, if I'm remembering correctly, the reason why this video itself went so large was because she broke character and off screen yells at her son who's off camera and says something about how she's going to give away the dog because it's interrupting her video. She breaks, <laughs> she breaks NPC character. Am I right, Coop? There like was, yeah. But I mean, that's not, that was already after she became sort of a viral okay, sensation but already from the the, other the, the video I saw was just about her right. breaking the yeah. NPC role. Well, that's because she had already been exposed as this new Yeah, that sensation. would be interesting, yes, if she wasn't already. Hey. No, no, that, that's, that's fine. I, I, Speaking I just, of, I just thought, yeah. yeah, yeah, there we go. I, I, wait, you know, uh, who, who, the, who are you to anthropomorphize me? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have seen the video. I don't think I don't go on TikTok, so I would. I don't either. Video. I would I just know the video Twitter. on Twitter if she hadn't had the moment where right. she breaks NPC exactly. character hmm, okay. and yells at her son off screen about the dog that's interrupting her. Her her stream where she's getting a little bit of sense at the time. Yeah. But isn't that like all these affect the affect economies, aren't they? Like yeah, the yeah. reaction videos and it's anything can be given a face, right? Yeah. Yeah. And monetized, right? You can't <laughs> just play a piece of music. You have to play the piece of music with two people reacting as if for the first time yeah. in a fully manufactured way because music itself would be i mean it's it's, it's always been facialized right to yeah. allow it to be commodified like increasingly so right i mean that's that's an interesting way of saying it you know when just to privatize it right because everyone knows that no matter how great the musical artist right prince Sinead o'connor like just take like mm -hmm. the last mm -hmm. right they're not the authors of what ultimately gets attached to the face. It's always a collective, right? That's not to deny there aren't acts of genius, right? But it's to say those acts of genius are always part of a crowd, but that's never the way we apprehend them. They're fa completely facialized, right? And that goes back to, you know, like, of course, it's that particular face, right? A beautiful, young, buxom woman, right, that's, that helps that one circulate readily right it's Go almost ahead. like the other side of oedipus is like the ocularity aspect of it in the sense of like the oracular ability the teleological structure of sort of relation of being seen in like time and i guess sort of a destiny a yeah, narrative that one is caught in that no matter what you do you're sort of still contributing to the your own sort of subjection to the outcome that you tried so, you know, hard to struggle <laughs> against. The teleology, the teleology idea is really, really crucial because instead of having, there are a whole diffuse, you know, multiplicity events and layers and an event occurs, you have, I had this thought, here is this output, 
I am the author, right? And now it has its way in the world. And that notion of one owns one's desire, one manufactures one's desire, one sends it out as output, then one receives the profits from that is a way of privatizing, monetizing what is ultimately collective, right? right and yeah. it's face, and you do that, the face becomes increasingly important to that, the face and the proper name. It's funny that you have a note on faciality. Yeah, exactly. The white, the white wall, black, <laughs> black hole. Yeah. Uh, I know that's a Guattari thing. He was fascinated about, Deleuze himself says it in, um, I think his letter to the, the Japanese translator of A Thousand Plateaus, where he's like, look, Guattari is fascinated by black holes. He's not trying to, and I, I was trying to tell this to someone the other day. Often I talk to people in STEM, they're in science and whatnot, and they think philosophy is meaningless. I can think of um, the fashionable nonsense, right? The yeah. SoCal and, and Brigmont. Yeah. And, and, and what they don't understand, I'm talking about SoCal and Brigmont, is how... Yeah. Someone like Watery, someone like Deleuze, and he Deleuze actually articulates this very well. Where it's not about using a concept or an idea from science and importing it in the way in which it's exact, in the way in which science uses it exactly, in the sense of exactitude of calculations. It's an anexact importation, whereby it's no longer. It's not about metaphor, right? as Deleuze wants to say, it's about sort of recalibrating the idea so that it can work outside of its specific function. But that's what's, you know, the thing about that Sokal and Brickmont is their image that philosophers sort of make things up and play fast and loose. Right. Right. Is um, that's what sci good scientists <laughs> do. Like, I don't know what idea... So Callum Brickmont had of science that there's here's these hard facts and science just, you know, gets the data and relays the data. No scientist thinks that that's the case, right? So right. that was a, a cheap own goal against continental philosophy. The, the, <laughs> an, appalling, an appalling version of science, which is what now, you know, we're suffering from people thinking science has some, clear grasp of the real and when it doesn't we go into a, a panic when of course that that's you know that's not what any good science is as well as we no i mean it's exactly true and and this gets back to the the herzog cinema verite thing where i was i mentioned social realism but in the sciences one can think of the dream of mathematics to ballast itself like for say frega uh russell whitehead Principia Mathematica, where it's trying to prove axiomatically that science is, or that mathematics, sorry, is can be complete axiomatically yeah. and can be consistent. And someone like Gödel comes along and kind of blows that dream apart and proves it via, you know, set theoretical math, intramathematical means. And I, I see something similar with the dream of physics with the uh, what's the theory of everything. The, yeah, basically the universe or universal laws can be summed up in one equation, yes. right? The, I think that there's something similar going on where it seems as though this is a part of an image of thought, to use that phrase again. Uh, this is a part of a fantasy whereby thinking, calculating can be internally complete and consistent 
where and 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 honestly i think that if one can see something like girdle's proof extended and exactly if you will to other domains whereby obviously completeness and consistency are fantasies are a part of a certain image of thought where thinking can kind of encapsulate itself in a bubble and be perfect that's that, what's so that, interesting about Moadib, right? And Coop and I were talking about this Moadib uh, in, in Dune insofar as he's able to tap into his genetic algorithm and kind of see the past and therefore calculate the future. But there are, and this is Guattari's phrasing, obviously Deleuze has problems with quote-unquote the possible based on Bergson, but like Guattari is talking about possibles, possibilization. This is kind of a phrase that he always talks about. As Moadib, the main character, you know, in Dune is is moving forward with his vision of of freeing the the Fremen and and sort of overthrowing the Empire, the what is possible narrows, and he has to kind of sacrifice the best outcome, if you will, right. is is yeah. in sacrificing his uh, fiance, his wife. I guess I was also thinking about this. This is a great point, Coop. Your, your Dune fetish, the main hinge of at least the first book of Dune is kind of who would you kill to save the world? And for um, for Muad'Dib, the Messiah figure, if you will, he has to sacrifice his beloved. Or he would need to kill himself to prevent the horrible future. You know, what I find interesting is that cinema often asks that question, right? It does have, like, you would have to destroy everything, right? Yes. Uh, in order to hold on to what you take to be valuable, worth saving, right? It, what is really interesting in cinema is that it constantly poses that existential question and then more often than not goes, ah! <laughs> waves like, it away, right. Yeah. Waves it away, right? And it's almost as though there's some sort of existential exercise in us confronting the possibility of, mate, like one of my favourite films, uh, the day the earth stood still you know if you really you know we're here to annihilate humanity because all you've been is violent and it's like oh yeah and then like oh but it's okay <laughs> right never mind right it is interesting that 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 does get asked but not answered that's a rendition of of wells's uh story there's um asimov in i think it's the first robot i think it's just I robot the the first robot books which is kind of a series of actually short stories where there's the aliens come and they're like we're taking over because humanity can't preserve the three laws it's going to annihilate itself eventually and i think that that's part of your perspective in um at least your first volume of essays on extinction where yeah. you know you you pose this problem about the anthropocene and uh, how we are confronted with not only killing off all life but even killing off what it means to be human there's a kind of dialectical annihilating kernel to humanity itself it was kind of like what i was i think i mentioned this to you last night coop maybe i was talking to someone else about nietzsche's you know death of god where it's the very idea of of truth the very idea of this ideal of truth in platonism and christianity that god kind of annihilates himself so in terms of even if Nietzsche dramatizes it as we're the ones who killed him, it's actually 
we're the ones who in remaining faithful to the idea of the event of truth right yeah uh, exactly uh, god god eventually kills himself so there's something yeah. about that in the kernel of humanity you're like yes. we're whereby humanity kind of is killing itself is annihilating it's intrinsically self-annihilating right it's always there's always you know at the very whatever you think of as like the myth of western reason it's always you have to keep killing off all these threats to your own self whether it's sense perception or mm -hmm. even later in Kant, reason tends to outstep itself mm -hmm. right reason has to constantly undo itself and annihilate its own tendencies and you know that's even there in uh Deleuze and Guattari and what is philosophy it's that everything in philosophy is struggling to think but it's also constantly undermined right like we have to kill off the whole history of philosophy in order to start doing philosophy properly right mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a good point and gosh it, it reminds me how anti-Oedipus begins with Schreber yes. whereby Schreber's delirium is that humanity has already died off yeah and the very purpose of his becoming woman is to be able to give this sort of infinite unextinguishable desire of god to be you know constantly pleasured in order to give birth to this new humanity yeah and uh it kind of reminds me whereby it's it's almost Schraber's already he's already on the other side of of the question whereby like who would you kill to save the world? Well, the world has already been killed. Who do I become to give birth to the people to come? And I think that's why Deleuze and Guattari they don't say this in a thousand plateaus, but it's like becoming always starts with becoming woman. I think that they might be thinking of Schraber, right? Schraber has to become woman to immaculately conceive, right? Or new, to or to deprivatize sexuality to mm. sexuality not one's own. I mean, I don't want to. Yeah, that's a can of worms. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I like I like. Cans yeah, that's of worms. interesting. I, I'm the one that opened it. I, yeah. I, I already. I just I I think you've written on this, by the way. I know you. I have, have but, but you know that's partly because when you when I started, not just Deleuze, but continental philosophy was. There weren't as many women working in continental philosophy. There still then. aren't, if you. There still to aren't, but it was way worse back then. And okay, you no, know, it always got. It always would be like I got the, you know, hey, can you talk about? Like we're going to talk about Deleuze. Can you talk about becoming? You know, you. Oh my you, god! Okay, you, I see. I you see. You know about that, and then I think my best reading of it would be that you know we we were talking about just earlier. There is no like working class waiting there to inherit the earth, right? There is right. no if we could just get outside patriarchy and you know, if we voted for Hillary Clinton, everything will be okay. Right. But that there's that sense that woman does not exist, right? That's yes. that sense. There's no like I was brought up in the era of eco-feminism and mm -hmm. if we just have some separatist lesbian collective, everything will be awesome. I think becoming woman is, okay, woman does not exist, right? There yeah. is no redemptive outside. But you can either then stay with Lacan and just abandon that, right? Okay, there is no woman. Shut the fuck up and just right. deal. Or there's this sense of what would it, like becoming woman, what might be generated in that 
space, right? And there's a recent book, like really recent, Lee Edelman's Bad Education. You've worked with Edelman before. Yeah. And he's come back against, well, not against, with like Afro-pessimism that says you can't just include blackness in the polity. You can't just say, you know, black people are just as human as... Right. But no, right, his claim is, like, so Afro-pessimism is no, you've got to acknowledge that the whole game is built on anti-blackness. And Edelman's come in and said, you can put anything there, woman, trans, queer, blackness. There's Any other? Place, huh? Any other? Any Right, there's always something that is abjected by yeah. the public. And his hardcore stance, because, of course, Lacanian, Demanian, is you have to, like, it does not exist, right? Queerness does not, it's not gay people. Queerness is not gay people, right? If we could just be all have some gay friends, everything, mm-hmm. would, you know, it's that there is something inassimilable. And I think becoming woman was a different strategy. Where it's like, yeah, it doesn't exist, that eco-feminist earth mother maternal plenitude thing does not exist. But what could you, like, becoming woman is that, right? It is like what what could be pieced together or uh, multiplied outside of yeah. the father's story, like the Oedipal story? In the sense in which the event does not exist. The right? event does the, not the, exist. It, it insists, it subsists. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a language of becoming. It's yeah. not a language of being. To bring back your, uh, contra your Heideggerian roots, right? You know, it's a... Uh, it's not something to to be uncovered. Right. Um, and, you know, let's go back. Being does not exist, right? Cross it mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It's not something that you can find. This is wonderful. In fact, I think that um, to speak, to use the Lacanian register, I know you may not have, I don't know, but you may not have gone to, scene, to see Barbie, by the way. Um, I don't want to go. Oh, you have to. Well, yeah, I think I do. Uh, but, you know, I no. tend Wait, yeah. I tend yeah. to wait until I'm on an airplane to Australia and then yeah. that's like the perfect moment to watch just, that. Just just uh, download a cam of it, touring it, be, uh, you know, in terms of, yeah, you, know, it has, you don't, yeah. You don't yeah. have to go to a theater. Um, okay, but, thank you. <laughs> but basically, I'll just say not to, not to kind of ruin or spoil it, but I yeah. feel like there is a part of traversing the fantasy of, woman quote-unquote barbie existing as woman as you know okay. just in, just include her and you can just take down patriarchy uh, yes and it's fine yeah. and then we'll get back our our barbie fantasy land there is a sense in which the movie for its benefits and its flaws which i think are few the flaws at least i really really thought oh, it was great okay. but i do think there is a traversing the fantasy of interest of starting with a kind of commodified Barbie who who always stands on her uh, tippy toes, who's, uh, you know, this perfect ideal of, you know, women can be everything and are everything. And there is a traversing of the fantasy where that gets toppled, but reinstated. But it's it's a dialectical reinstatement that's not obviously at the start. So there is a kind of, again, I, I'm going to abuse the phrase, a traversing of the fantasy of uh, sort of what if women ruled the world and it kind of confronts us with that and with 
the reality of that inverted image of let's just say you know men rule the world because ken has his own traversing of the fantasy it's very much this question of and of course Dulles and guattari didn't even coined the phrase of becoming woman that, that at least goes back to the Beauvoir, right? Like, yes. um, yeah. I mean, she may have coined the phrase, but she probably didn't originate the idea. And of, of course, ideas are, you know, collective. not necessarily. Yeah, exactly. They're collective so, and anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to make you talk about becoming woman. I'm just trying to think about how <laughs> so much, so much. Look at so this much, guy. So much, much over here. But, but so much of the discourse today is still about this idea of woman as being a sort of biological objective. Again, cinema verite, uh, uh, neutral yeah. given. Why, why is everyone, why is the New York Times so freaking obsessed with trans people, mm -hmm. right? Because there has to be this sense that there is woman, right? That there is an essence. That, right that, and it's very it just doesn't make sense that both to me that this like the whole world is falling apart and we're obsessed about one elite athlete and we're obsessed about and that's because if we don't contain woman with the privatized individual who is mm. what isn't the whole and the whole thing falls down and it's true the whole thing does fall down if you start looking at elite sports right which i just had some inch i don't watch sport but I, when i take part in it like if you go to uh gravel rides you can be male female or non-binary why because there's no money involved but the minute okay. you start going up to like iron man qualifications you know you can't right because the minute you start attributing money, you're privatizing sexuality and I cannot own a certain body and earn certain money from that body. And, you know, that. so I think the whole point about becoming woman is would be really radical if you, you start with elite sports, right? The whole thing would fall apart, but so would our versions of politics and meritocracy because we like oh well at a molar level yes we want more women to be ceos politicians blah, blah. right you're just like that's bullshit and the minute you put trans women into that equation right everyone starts getting very uncomfortable yeah. what's more interesting is not negotiating with that looking why does this make you so uncomfortable why is the new york times so freaking obsessed with trans <clears throat> kids because if we started to look too closely at that, the whole privatization of sexuality would fall apart. This kind of, and I know this is kind of outside the bounds of, of this topic, but this makes me rethink the notion of abstract labor power and primitive accumulation because yeah. obviously it's gendered, right? So how, how abstract can it be? And I know that Marx and Engels were, for a certain point, like they were fairly at some points progressive for their time on this yes. topic but yeah that's um and i know that that you go into this in various ways in, in your work so i won't belabor the point but uh yeah i mean particularly again i i was talking to a to a friend a stem friend of mine about um the turing test and how so often the turing test gets like boiled down to just proving artificial intelligence ability to quote unquote fool a human but yeah. it's very i think 
purposeful of Turing to have made the AI a female who is a deceiver. It's very clearly a gendered aspect of the test whereby the, the AI is a female who is deceiving, almost like the embodiment of Eve, if you will. Yes. And then it we is. have Siri and Alexa. Later. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't think about that either. The that's, NPC. That's the NPC. Back yeah. to the NPC TikTok yeah. kind of vibe, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not going to be a male, you know. No, men are always subjects. Right. Again, that's a... You're blowing my mind here. Okay, <laughs> at this point, I know we've had you well, on for a yeah. little while. Coop, I, I want to let you... I have one last thing because you referenced the film The Counselor. Oh, God, I love that film, yeah. It's such a great movie. And I'm thinking specifically of the scene whenever he gets the call or he call, speaks to the uh, the jefe, like the cartel head, which is like just a darkly hilarious moment. But he's the, the head of the cartel is kind of telling him, I'm like, look, all of these worlds exist. Now you live in the world in which your beloved is dead and there's nothing you can do to go back and reverse the sequence of events that led to this time. So you need to accept that you're at this particular point where you have to, yeah, you just sort of have to go on. But I think what's also interesting about the whole movie itself in regard to this conversation and a little bit about becoming woman and just the way that this sort of is involved is like this contradiction or this like juxtaposition of Penelope Cruz's character within yes. the, who is his beloved that sort of represents this typical like stereotypical femininity versus Malkina who is like the the uber woman who like men are sort of nothing to her like she had she fucks the car like yeah. she's total like her sexuality is not restrained whatsoever <laughs> and she like she you know witnesses the she talks about how the what is it those leopards chase down their prey and so forth and she takes like a pleasure in witnessing that and talks about how like the the world is going to end and the slaughter to come is she's a sort of bad um <laughs> she's a she's the first year undergraduate who's just read nature right who oh my god you know god is dead and now everything is permitted right mm-hmm. it's uh, that's and and hasn't got to the second part of Brothers Karamazov right <laughs> now. But what are you going to create? Like, what are you, what are you going to build, right? Is Are you just going to be God is dead, therefore all I'm going to do is be savage, right? <laughs> or do you have the maturity or the thought or the sagacity or can you compose some form of ethics in the absence of God? Or And, you know, if you look at it in mccarthy's sort of weird mythology if you step outside of america uh, are you just gonna be like a gangland warfare or could you live without the myth of america right mm-hmm. so that's that's how i i read i mean mccarthy's more complex than that right but it's it's there's something profoundly existential about mccarthy and it's like not god is dead therefore everything is permitted it's like god it's that active nihilism right it's like right, yeah god is dead then what would you be able to compose from that because i think it is funny in uh that film but also mccarthy's characters right like these gangsters speak like metaphysicians part of that is comical but part of it part of it is there is a certain like philosophical 
position of gangland, right? Which is how you have like ethics and loyalty in a world without right, yeah, the state, right, or the state, more importantly. Also, kind of interesting in that film how the snuff film also Penelope Cruz's character. We never see this actual. We we assume they, it's a snuff film. He gets a disc delivered to his, um, like he's hiding out in Mexico, and he gets a disc delivered, and which has been pre already like it's Chekhov's snuff film because it's referenced earlier in the film that yes. this is something that happens, and yes. so forth. So then we automatically know whenever he gets this disc, and he knows too that his beloved has been sort of the victim of this snuff film. Yeah, and that there's that. It's unwatchable, right? Yeah. We don't watch it. Which and is that, also kind of the NPC thing, too. It's like you're it is, just a right? machine. You can imagine, hey, that means that we've got to make a TikTok video. Where it's like ice, yeah, yum, yum, ice cream. Yeah, where, where Penelope Cruz speaking back. Um, <laughs> that is, there's a certain always unwatchable component that we know that it's there, right? But we don't want to know what it is. And we certainly don't, we know that it's there, but we're certainly not going to watch it right and we hope that it's always being mailed to someone else is the crew right and that we're always outsourcing yeah who knows about our, that violence right our, and who, who who has to watch that violence well not us right, right? yeah our own disavowal of what the violence yeah. that our whole lives are predicated on basically is what yeah. it amounts and to which you strongly made, argue he's made a mistake and that's the world he has to watch now that's, that's all I had though. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's great. That's great. Um, who would we kill to save the world? Who, which God would we yeah. kill, or which world would we kill to save our God? Yeah. Uh, um, Claire, I just want to give you the the chance before we let you go to not only plug the book that we kind of roundabout talked about. We <laughs> we, we kind of like we let the the audience maybe get intrigued to get to the center of the book but let you talk about obviously your most recent work but if you like we would also like to hear about what you have forthcoming in the future uh if you've yeah. got some projects i'm trying to finish a book on the privatization of morality now so it's oh, going to be okay forms of moral grandstanding and mm -hmm. storms and tweet storms and Partly things about yes, so that's that's where I'm going. Are you going to talk about wokeness and and the whole yes. war on woke? Yeah, <laughs> so yep. Unfortunately, yes, like cancel, like the woke mob, cancel culture. Supposed, you know, there was that Harper's letter that was written by a bunch of luminaries, including the late Martin Amos, I think maybe i don't think i've seen it and i probably don't want to no it, <laughs> but you know it was it was classic is you can't say anything anymore right oh, right. Motif, right, right right and so my my shtick is you know there is there's no such thing as free speech free speech is never free right someone always owns your speech and you've always mm. bought the right to speech at the expense of something else so maybe mm. the Maybe the cinema book, The Who Would You Kill, is about looking, right? And I've moved on, right? The speaking and hearing? The speaking, oh. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So that's where I'm at, yeah. Uh, that's that's the parletra, right? To go back to Lacan, you're, you're, the, the speaking <laughs> being, right? Yeah. So from Lots the seeing being to the, to the speaking being. I, I swear, uh, Coop tweeted something out a few weeks ago about um, there's this 
kind of famous picture of Lacan, like uh, with Heidegger and his wife and Heidegger and his wife are looking like <laughs> almost adoringly at him as though they like they're uh, a polycule, honestly, like, like, like they're like, like they're me. going to, uh, yeah, uh, that we'll have to, Maybe I'll I'll send it to you. Maybe I won't. I won't bother you with that. Uh, you don't. I'll, to... I'll no. I'll have to find it. That's oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sure Coop. If you want, before we let Claire go, why don't you pull up Lacan with Heidegger? And I think that one of Coop's points was the early uh, the early Lacan at least is very uh, much kind of enamored with Heidegger and for uh, sure, for and, sure, because it's you know, idle chatter, not mm -hmm. only your speech, dead language. Right. Just not a, oh go. my goodness. Here we go. Look at okay, so look at Lacan. Oh my goodness. That's like that meme where the guy is walking along the street and yes. the, <laughs> yes. the guy checking out the guy. Yes. You somehow you have to circulate this now as a meme. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, but Heidegger's little Hitler mustache is I yeah, know. right. Why? Oh, Why? I'm Why sorry, did... man. That's the look that Heidegger <laughs> at least Heidegger and himself, yeah. I mean, yes. they're 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 both kind of. I swear, whenever I see Lacan, I can't, especially younger Lacan, and I know he's middle aged here, but he kind of always reminds me of Anthony Bourdain. Sorry, yes. R.I.P., but I always kind of yep. see it's a type Anthony Bourdain here. But yeah, you can kind of see them. Uh, there's something going on here. <laughs> with, with, yeah, with like this, I say, uh, it's it's you've got. I I put it on YouTube to circulate. This is a meme now. Uh -huh, yeah. You know, <laughs> contemporary feminism, liberal feminism, and mm -hmm. Deleuze, you know, like looking, forms of looking. Did you see Lacan, uh, Lacan's little wristwatch? That, that, wearing that was... the watch over the shirt. Yeah. That yeah. Was, uh... It's a move. Yeah. yeah it's time, a move. But it's also, it's also a very, if I will, it, that watch, that face of the watch is very feminine position. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's, uh, he's Women's on the, time. yeah, he's, uh, exactly. But, um, okay. So, you got a book coming out on um, on speaking. Anything else you want to you would like to highlight? Is there a way we can? I know you've been to some conferences lately. I is there a way we can access your most recent talk or anything we can know. add in the in the show notes? <laughs> I don't know. I think at the last one was the Deleuze conference, and so I'll probably publish that in the next few issues of Deleuze and Guattari studies. Okay, a journal I highly recommend. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. No, that's 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 great. I um, I was talking to Dan about about you. Maybe your ears were again talking about speaking and hearing. Maybe your ears were burning. I was talking about you uh, about a, uh, two weeks ago, and he was like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to see her in 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 Europe." You know, uh, so hopefully you got to talk to Dan. He's one of my my favorite. Uh, yeah, gave and... a great gave an absolutely great talk on techniques. Actually, he there did. you go. That's yeah. good. Okay, well, you know, Claire, we just want to, I want to thank you again for, for, My pleasure. for coming and talking with us. Honestly, obviously we could, we had a million more topics opened up with the talk. So definitely I want to thank you again. And hopefully if you had fun today, we can welcome you back once you made more headway in your new book and we can talk yep. about speaking. Any day now. Out any <laughs> Thanks guys. Thank you so See much. Ya. And have a great have a great Sunday. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. And once again, thanks to Claire Colbert for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. It
including the ultimate form of security, which is Hellcat. The whole state of things, pure violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.